Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. For the 41st episode of our podcast, I interviewed Mike Sullivan, CEO of Acquia. Mike is an entrepreneur who co-founded an early SaaS company called Steelpoint Technologies, a provider of high-end electronic discovery solutions that was acquired. If you're not familiar with Acquia, they're one of the anchor tech companies in the Boston tech scene that helps companies create digital experiences. They have a global presence with about 800 employees. And one really interesting point to note during our conversation, Mike shares Acquia's revenue numbers, and it is really eye-opening to hear about the company's scale. In this episode, we cover the details on Steelpoint and how the company moved from a services business to a productized solution, his decision to join Acquia, and his partnership with Dries Beitart, Acquia's chairman, CTO, and co-founder. And just in case you didn't know, Dries is actually the founder of Drupal. We also talk about the current state of Acquia and their strategy moving forward, which could include making acquisitions, advice for growing a bootstrap business with a focus on trying to generate revenue day one and getting your first customers, plus a lot more. Okay, quick side note. Did you know that we have three different email properties? One is our weekly digest email, which features all the amazing things happening in the Boston tech scene. Then we have our daily job alerts email, which features jobs from the previous day that were posted to our site. And our daily stories email, which has all the details on the people, products, and companies that are powering Boston's innovation economy. To subscribe, go to venturefizz.com backslash email. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Mike. Mike, thanks so much for joining us. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Let's take a, a journey back, back in time here. So where'd you grow up? I actually grew up, born and raised here in the Boston suburbs. I grew up in the South Shore in a little town called Whitman. Got it. Okay. And what led you to becoming a, a Falcon and, and going to Bentley? You know, um, I did some research. Uh, I don't think people quite did as much thought into where they were going back then as kids do today, but uh, I was interested in computers and it was interestingly enough in 1984 when I entered school, uh, you know, it wasn't quite the same uh, choice in computer programs as there is today, but they had an interesting um, major that was kind of a combination of business and technology that I found interesting. And so it uh, turned out to work work out well for me. And how did you generate that initial interest in computers? You know, I'm not sure I was interested in computers. I, I think I thought I was. Um, mm-hmm. It sounded interesting. I knew it was a hot field. So some of it was a guess. Uh, I was interested in science and found that interesting generally. I was a musician and, you know, knew that there was a correlation between, knew some musicians who had kind of found an interest in the field. So, um, you know, a little bit of it, if it was trial and error and I got lucky. So what, what musical instrument do you play? I'm a pianist. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. This is a common theme for my podcast, by the way, like <laughs> almost every interview. So we just had Paul English on like musician and just um, David friend. Like there's so many connections, uh, Jeet Singh and ATG. Like, oh. so we need to create this, uh, get a band just, going, get a band going and it'll be an amazing group. I'm <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> uh, and was any of this um, influenced by your parents? Like, what did they do for work or what was their profession? Well, yeah, well, certainly the music was. My mother was a musician, a professional singer, uh, and you know, played out all over the Boston area for, for many years. So that part of it was. My father was a, a, a an executive at Raytheon in finance. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Now, after graduating from Bentley, what did you do after that? I went to work for Raytheon in my first job as a software developer, right over in Waltham in the equipment division. I was a, 
a software developer for the uh, my first year out of school. So what, equipment division, like what does that mean? Because we know Raytheon is, you know, defense. Yeah, it is. It was really interesting time because uh, Raytheon is a is a big defense contractor. It's very secure, uh, you know, very regimented world. Very very different than what you would find in say a startup like we see today, where everything's you know, very loose in a very different culture. So that was my first introduction to uh, the professional world after school, and I have to say it's very different than what you know I found myself in most of the time in the in the tech industry. And. Did you start your first company after that? Like, was that? No, you know, I left, um, I I was recruited away by uh, the co-founder of my first company, Steelpoint, uh, Joe Romanowski, went to Bentley College as well. We met there and he recruited me away to a consulting company he was at, a small little consulting company. And uh, we ended up there together doing uh, custom software and networking for for you know different businesses around the Boston area, and you know really gave us a taste of you know kind of the first time we were really put out there as the own you were on your own you were a product that was being sold and uh, you know at, at that time those kind of businesses were you know very different you know you had different types of computer systems and uh, the talent was harder to find you know it's the internet hadn't quite uh, merged yet. So um, uh, it was an interesting time. It was harder to learn on your own. You know, today you can look it up on the internet and you couldn't mm-hmm. do that then. And, and was it this uh, consulting business that led you down the path to create Still Point? Were you actually doing work in that domain? It really was, you know, and it was also the thing that gives you the confidence that you have the technical skills and the business chops. Consulting for me introduced me to the world of, you know, estimating jobs and pricing them out and dealing with customers and, you know, it's really good mix of skills that are required there along with your technical skills. And, uh, you know, Joe and I actually started Steel Point together. And, uh, if, you know, funny enough, we had t- talked about starting a business while we were in Bentley. And so we both kind of had the entrepreneurial itch early on and uh, we followed through on it. Well, let's talk about Steel Point because, you uh... It was a very different time to build a company then than it is now. So what was that like and what did you guys do? Yeah, you know, we I have to say we were probably more hell-bent on starting a company than picking out what the company was going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and we really started out as a professional services company. So we had developed a niche for working in uh, content management, which back then was more imaging and uh, you know, a lot of scanning of documents and working with paper, but in electronic format. And we started doing a lot of custom work for companies in that world. And um, you know, we were able to get customers immediately, uh, have profits early on. Uh, you know, the, those kind of skills were in demand. And eventually, we found an application that was very repeatable, and we turned that into a product. And that really became, you know, the the point where steel point took off because we had something that was very repeatable and it was in the legal profession, right? That's where your solution was. It was. Yeah. I mean, at that point, computers were really at the point where they were creating lots of documents, but they hadn't really, um, gotten, you know, to the point where they were digitizing the documents really well. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, we got hired to do some work on the orange County bankruptcy out in California and there were millions and millions of documents that needed to be reviewed by attorneys, which would be very, very difficult to do with paper. Uh, and, you know, all the processing that you need to do with these documents, stamping them and 
uh, annotating them and redacting them. And there's a lot of other work that needs to be done. And so we wrote software that facilitated all that and digitized all these things. And uh, it got written up in some of the trade rags at the, so at the time, computer world and info world and others. And we got calls from other large corporations that said, hey, we need that too. Uh, so that's really how it all started. And was this mainly used by uh, corporations like their internal legal department or is it law firms directly or both? Really both. You know, our first calls were from big companies that got uh, sued. You know, we had uh, Exxon, had the Exxon Valdez case going. And, you know, there are some other large corporations that hired you know, regular litigation. And, you know, these days, of course, litigation is is a regular phenomenon for any company. So over time, the business grew. Um, you know, litigation certainly has become much more complex. So we were lucky that we were in the early stages of an industry that was about to explode in terms of the the sophisticated requirements, the technical challenges, the explosion of information and types. And then, of course, the advent of electronic discovery, which included email and text and everything else, um, not just paper. And how do you make that conversion? So I'm sure there's people that have this aspiration to productize what their service is like so how do you make that evolution from um you know a headcount model where you're going out and i'm assuming you're billing by the project or by the by the uh you know hour to okay now we need to make an investment into a core engineering team that's going to productize what we're doing like how, how do you actually make that happen that's a really good question and that was a pivotal point for the company i think that's one of those points you look back at as an entrepreneur where you had to take a risk. I mean, there's lots of, you know, points in time, I think for any entrepreneur where they look back, but yeah, I mean, we were in a billable model and we tended to spend only when we were going to be able to rebuild what we spent. And uh, we had to, you know, have that, that really, that investment of R and D our profits. And, um, and, you know, you, you take a lot of personal sacrifice and as an owner of a company as well, we weren't taking large salaries. We were trying to keep the money in the company. Um, but, you know, we had a conviction about it and we were determined to make it right. Uh, we worked very hard to line up customers in advance and get terms that would pay us and fund these things. And, uh, you know, some of those contracts were structured such that we had to deliver to get paid. So that gives you a, a lot of incentive to, you know, to execute. And uh, I think we we recruited some some really, you know, young and um, uh you know, ambitious employees that, that were in it with us. And, uh, you know, I think, uh, ended up doing very well, uh, you know, just for being at a company at an early stage where they had that kind of a, an opportunity. And just for context, what was the uh, year that you made that evolution to being more of a product company? I would say that was probably in, in the late nineties, uh, probably in, uh, 98 or 99. Got it. Okay. Yeah. And it's obviously, um, you know, it's, it's, it was a different time, like 98, 99, right? So that was more about the dot-com era, right? So you were building enterprise software. And was this software that was, you know, behind the firewall, like you had to go out and implement? Or was this like an early SaaS? Like sometimes I run into companies that was an ASP, right? Before SaaS was a term. <laughs> they, they, oh, you're bringing me back. Yeah. Um, yeah. At that time we would have called it an ASP or hosting or, but it really was SaaS. Um, you know, we had, we really created it as software, but this happened to be an application that was really built for SaaS. It was really built uh, 
to be in a distributed world uh, in a centralized computer system. There was lots of different parties that had to access these repositories of information, different law firms, different um, you know people that had an interest in these suits and so forth. So, yeah, we we ended up hosting these things and building you know data center capabilities to to run these big systems, and they got to be pretty pretty large and lots and lots of people logging into it and. You know, it ended up being a, a company that had really pushed the limits of um, you know, volumes before the internet came along. And was your model as far as um, were customers paying you like an, an annual license before subscription type of pricing models? Yeah, we went to subscription uh, early. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and largely that was because in a SaaS model, obviously you have regular expenses on a monthly basis. Um, so we had a subscription basis that wasn't fixed. It was largely based on volumes and users and things like that. And how did you figure out like the, the data centers, right? Like it wasn't like Amazon web services. You could just scale up and, you know, <laughs> probably like a lot of startups, we, we started with some servers in a closet and, right. uh, you know, it, it grew from there and you realize, you know, it was interesting in the early days of SaaS applications and, and before cloud, of course, it, people you know, we didn't have the same kind of security threats and um, we didn't have the same kind of, uh, you know, standards that exist today. And so we were, we were pretty early. It was, it was really uh, a pioneering time to have that kind of an offer. And, uh, you know, it's been interesting to see how the whole world has, has changed. And you're, you're making me think, think back how different it was right, you know, right now. <laughs> right. Well, and then the security piece, right? Security. So like, you know, in everyone's face now, yeah. but you were dealing with these legal documents, right? Like that had to be secure. And these are like, so yeah. you're hosting these. So to have like the trust factor must've been uh, tough to sell. Like, well, what do you mean you're going to have our you know, documents and legal information in the cloud, well, not in the cloud back then, but you're hosting it. Yeah. A little different because it wasn't the cloud. It was very, you know, as much as it was remote, it was closed off systems and, you know, dedicated servers and things like that at that time. So it wasn't as much shared infrastructure. Um, and you know, there'd be dedicated lines and things like that. But, um, there's no doubt that, um, winning those first few customers that are good brands that, you know, had that trust in you and then doing it well and using them as references was a big key. Um, you know, if you were trusted, say for the Exxon Valdez or for some of these other cases, then you end up, um, you know, getting credibility for the next one. And this was bootstrap primarily at first, but you did raise growth capital at, at some point. So what led you to the point to finally take on outside funding? Yeah, you know, we we bootstrapped the company from the early '90s, and uh, once we launched this project product, um, you know, we were we had some good momentum as a company. We had received some recognition as entrepreneurs and you know fast you know fast growing companies and those kind of awards. And it, you know, if you remember back to that time, there was a frenzy of um, dot com activity, and there was a lot of venture capital money looking for good investments and. And we had people not, we weren't trying to raise money, but we had investors knocking on our door and uh, we decided to answer the doorbell and uh, talk to some of them. And, you know, we ended up uh, deciding it was a good idea to take that money. And you know, at the time for us, it was about April of 2000. If you think about what that timing was, I'd like to say it was midnight the night before the recession started. So we, we, we really took, um, you know, raise capital at a, at a very good time for to be raising it. Uh, and we're fortunate we were one of those companies that did really well during that dot com, um, you know, I'll call it recession. 
Yeah. So timing is everything, right? So you were flush with cash, able to uh, last past that whole dot-com recession. And I'm sure it must've been like, if you, if you guys were hiring, obviously you had, what your company was doing had nothing to do with that whole world, right? So there was value, there was a market for what you're doing. And I would imagine as you were growing your company that you know, hiring must have gotten a little bit easier because everyone was laying people off. So access to, you know, upgrading talent or whatever. Well, what was interesting for us is the type of work that we did um, actually became in more demand in the down economy. So you had bankruptcies going on. You had lots of companies going out of business. The, the amount of lawsuits increased. And it's not just lawsuits. It was other kinds of uh, compliance and audit type of regulatory activities and things like that. And it really accelerated during that time. And so we, we continued to find business uh, when a lot of other companies who were more focused maybe on uh, marketing and, and other types of activities uh, were struggling. And then eventually you got to the point where the company was acquired by Zantaz in 2004. That's right. Yeah. So I'm always fascinated by the acquisition story. Like, so like, how does that happen? Like, are you, um, you know, in a partnership with a company like that and they're finally like, Hey, let's acquire this company. Are they just like poking around and want to know more about your business and start talking about an M and a discussion? Like how do, how do these acquisitions actually happen? Yeah. You know, we had, um, had some inbound interest for, for acquisitions. Uh, we had investors who at that time had been in for um, four years. And uh, interestingly, Zantaz is a company out in Silicon Valley that had raised a lot of money and had a lot of venture capitalists in, and they really hadn't created a revenue stream yet. Um, they had some interesting technology. Uh, they just hired a new CEO. Um, and there was a new investor, investors coming in General Atlantic. And they really weren't going to put in money unless they were going to acquire another company or bring another company together that where they, I think, trusted the management team and thought they could add a lot of value in the future and bring, you know, a revenue stream and profits to the company. So we represented that. And uh, it was also a very logical uh, fit from a strategic. We were eDiscovery. Uh, Zantaz is doing some interesting stuff in compliant archiving. Uh, and those things went together very well, as it turns out. Now, there's a history here, and please correct me if I get this <laughs> wrong. So then Zantaz ends up getting acquired by Autonomy. Then Autonomy is acquired by HP. And then HP kind of splits into two to HP Enterprise and then merges with MicroFocus. And you were there the whole time, like this, you know, subsequent years, this all kind of happened, right? Yes. It's been, you know, as I look back on my career, I haven't had to quit a job. Well, I just, other than last year, <laughs> I hadn't quit a job in about 20 years, but I had continuously changed uh, companies and jobs and so forth. So it was a whirlwind of activity. And, it, you know, there were many times when during each of those transitions, I thought, you know, I'll I'll probably leave this and go do something new, but each one of them became really interesting and compelling. And I was able to, you know, play a very, very substantial role in each one of those companies. And and what did you learn in working for, you know, a company at the scale of HP? Like what were some of the, you know, foundation stuff that you took away from, from that experience? Yeah. You know, it was, it was a wonderful experience, you know, and you learn, um, 
you know, what it's like to be at a, a big company. When I arrived at HP, it was the largest technology company in the world, mm. uh, you know, much larger than IBM or, you know, Apple or anyone else. It would, you know, and since then I was there well, right when Meg became, Meg Whitman became CEO. And, uh, you know, there was, it was really four or five years of, of transition uh, as the company split up into about five different pieces. But it was, uh, it was an amazing uh experience that I'm very thankful to have. Um, you know, I say, um, I love what I'm doing now. It's just great to be back into an entrepreneurial company that's growing very fast. Um, and I, I'm, well, I'm thankful for the big company experience. I, I think I'm more cut out for, you know, growing company really fast, uh, like, like the one I'm at now at Acquia. And perfect segue. So that let's fast forward to today. So, uh, your CEO at Acquia, uh, how, how many, like you've been there for a little less than a year now, right? I started right before Christmas. So it's been uh, going on eight months. Yeah. Great. So, uh, just in case if people that are listening, aren't familiar with Acquia, what do you do? Acquia is the premier company that helps companies create digital experiences. Um, it, you know, historically Acquia, um, has, well, it's, it's really popular because Acquia is be the commercial entity behind the the open source platform called Drupal, which is the most popular enterprise web content management system in the world. It powers one out of every 40 websites in the world. So it's, you know, very, um, very widely spread and used out in the world. And Acqui is really the, the main commercial company behind that. And VentureFizz is one of those Drupal users. So our, <laughs> our site is built on Drupal. So we've been a on it for nine years now. So it's been, uh, it's been an amazing product. Um, now how about the size of, of Acquia in terms of, you know, the scale? So, uh, employees revenue. Yeah, I guess, um, we are 800 employees now with about half of those in the Boston area. And, uh, we have another 15 offices around the world as well. So we've, we're expanding a lot internationally. The company's become quite large. We've just passed $200 million in revenue. We're you know, privately held, but we're growing very fast as well. So I think it feels like Acqui has been one of the best kept secrets in Boston because it's a pretty, um, you know, for me as a new um, executive coming in, I've, I've learned a lot about the company and really surprised that it doesn't have a bigger profile in, in, in this area. I mean, I think people recognize that it's an anchor company based on the number of um, or the amount of money venture capital uh, or how much money in venture capital they've raised. But I don't think people truly understand the scale and the numbers that you just shared. So, yeah, that's 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 big time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's it's and it's, you know, it, there's really exciting things happening here. We're hiring like crazy. We're expanding. And, um, you know, there's this this particular market that we're in is very, very dynamic. And it's at an inflection point. There's a lot of changes occurring. So it's really exciting time to be here. Well, it seems like there is an evolution of Acquia as a company as it continues to grow um, from, you know, website management to data-driven customer journeys, which is, you know, what I was gathering from your website. Uh, so so what, what is the vision of Acquia as, you know, the company is expanding into um, other areas of, of helping companies with, uh, their websites and. Yeah. I, you know, I think you, you did a good job of, um, <laughs> I had some help from our website uh, <laughs> stuff. So that's great. Um, but you know, what's really happening, if you think about 
what's happening for any company these days. Everyone is trying to compete based on the quality of their digital experience. It doesn't matter how big you are, even you know, for small and medium-sized companies, as a matter of fact, it's maybe a much more effective weapon than large because you can certainly appear to be much larger than, than you are. Uh, and it's a great equalizing force, your digital experience. Um, but everybody's got to compete based on the digital experience. We've all been spoiled by Uber and Amazon and other companies that make things really simple to use. And so there's a tremendous pressure on everyone to compete. And, you know, it used to be that you'd have a website and websites in the early days were very static. And now they need to be very dynamic. They need to be personalized. And really, we've moved beyond really just websites and and companies, uh, you know, advanced companies are talking about digital experiences, which involve new channels. So you're engaging customers, not just through the web, but through maybe Alexa and mobile apps or maybe chat bots or even, you know, on the edge, you're talking about things like digital kiosks or virtual or uh uh, virtual reality or augmented reality. And, and there's just many, many other channels um, and ways to engage, obviously, social media being another one. And a journey is the notion that all those, uh, that a company is really engaged across all those touch points and that context and, and time matters. So if I'm in my car, uh, I might be interested in something different. It might engage a different way than I'm on, if I'm on social media or if I'm at home and so forth. So hopefully that makes sense. It does. No, it's a very different world and it's constantly evolving. So yes, uh, companies need to evolve with it. Now, the one of the um, you know key pieces to the success be behind the the Drupal project is its founder. So right. um, you know, so so Dries Boitart, if I'm hopefully pronouncing his last name right, which I think everyone like I was looking online to see how the pronunciation was. And I saw that everyone who introduced them said the same thing I just did. Like, I hope I got the name right. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm going to uh, I'm going to take a shot at Butart is Butart. Uh, how okay. he pronounces it. Um, but, you know, he's, I think, very, very well known in this world. Of course, he's a, he's a bit of a minor celebrity, Dries. So I, maybe I shouldn't call him minor. That might be a slight to him. But uh, he's well known as Dries. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So he's got the one name, which that's when you know you're big time when people that's know right. you by the one name. Yeah. And uh, I met him at a Mass Technology Leadership Council event, you know, years ago. And uh, just I think it was just right when he had moved, uh, you know, permanent to to uh, the Boston area. And just an unbelievable, like humble type of person. And you just look at what he's created with Drupal. But obviously, you know, founding Acquia, right? And the value that Acquia has created for Drupal, it's just extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, he's an amazing person. And uh, when you think about, uh, you know, a, a college kid in Belgium starting a open source project, uh, I think it was 17 years ago, that now is has become the biggest open source project in the world. And open source, of course, itself has become... Um, you know, universally accepted now and even a very attractive model. Um, and, uh, you know, we're, we're lucky to be uh, you know, riding that wave. But Dries is an amazing person. He's in our world. He is a, a real thought leader in the space. He's widely accepted. And he's a bit of a minor celebrity, as I said, as well. I learned in my first month uh, when I was out at a trade show and people were coming up to him and asking him for asking him for his autograph that uh, I had uh, selfies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's the, well, so what's what's it like working with him? Meaning, you know, so you joins, um, you know, a little bit less than a year ago, and you know, the Aquia and Drupal are like, you know, very. It's his world, right? So I would imagine his selection criteria. I'm sure there was a whole bunch of people making the decision to bring you on as CEO, but I'm sure it's very personal for him to a, a whole, totally different degree. So what was it like, kind of spending time with him, getting to know him, and now your partnership, uh, you know, part of Aquia? Yeah, I think it's it's a great question for entrepreneurs who are interested because there is, you know, you hear horror stories about entrepreneurs and CEOs and, you know, not working out. And, it, you know, we're so lucky because Dries and I are just, you know, have been great partners in the time that I've been here. He was really thoughtful about the way he pursued a CEO. And, you know, he took a lot of time and wanted to make sure it was right. We spent a lot of time together, uh, you know, prior to uh, me having the offer to join as CEO. And it was important to me and it was equally as important to him. And, you know, we really wanted it to be uh, something that, you know, would, would have a high pr probability of succeeding. So we spent a lot of time just exploring not only, you know, the classic interview questions about experience and so forth, but really spending some personal time together to make sure we had, you know, we really had the same kind of style and ideas about how to do things. And uh, it's, I'm glad we put the time in and it's been, it's been a wonderful experience. So what's the plans moving forward for Acquia? Well, we're expanding very aggressively. Um, you know, I think in my first uh, 100 days, is a, like any CEO, I created a 100-day plan. And what I realized was that, you know, there is this inflection point in the market, and we've got to get out there and take advantage of it aggressively. So we've increased our R&D uh, innovation um, budget by 90% this year. Wow. Yeah. And so the one of the biggest challenges we have is actually spending that as fast as the, the allocation because it means hiring a lot of very talented people. And so it's right. a, very tough to do in this market right now. Uh, so all those listeners, you know, we have we have jobs open here at Acquia. Um, but that's one of the challenges. So we're we're bringing new products to market. Uh, we are we're also will be looking, you know, at at acquisitions where appropriate. You know, I think it's we're big enough as a company. We have the scale. We have open platform uh, that we, we think we're a good company to go and execute on those kind of transactions now. And, um, you know, that's that's the main area that we want to focus on is our innovation engine. So we've been spending a lot of time there. And how do you establish, like, you know, I'm sure it already existed at Acquia, a culture of innovation, but how do you you know take that, you know, wow, you just increased the, the budget 90%. That's like you're not even doubling down your, you know, whatever degree doubling down. So like, how do you keep that level of innovation going in a company of that scale? Yeah, I think, you know, you've got to encourage risk taking. And one of the things that I did learn at HP, which is, you know, bring back to an earlier question you asked is, you know, how do you encourage risk taking without, you know, having it be frivolous? And, um, you know, because, and one of the ways I learned is that you can ask people to come up with ideas and proposed plans for those ideas. So in other words, you know, spend a lot of time exploring things with, with your employees and spend a lot of time letting them tell you, if we did this, we would get this. And then, um, you know, asking them to go back and do some more analysis on it and so forth. So that you're actually spending time and asking them to engage in the work uh, you know, to justify a plan 
which is actually a very valuable experience for a lot of young people who want to learn more in their business career. And, uh, you know, they become part of the justification of, you know, allocating budget to fund things, uh, to run projects and so forth, rather than just encouraging people to go off and do things on their own. You know, you bring it into kind of a program that helps support those things. And then they all obviously, if they're participating in creating this program, they all believe, right? So they believe in the mission, vision. That's right. Uh, It's not like coming down from the top and it's like, we're doing this. Right. You get very invested in it. Yes. Yeah. Very cool. Um, now as CEO of Acquia, like, so, so who do you go for, for advice? Like, do you, do you have mentors? Like, who do you look for and how do you continue to improve? Well, uh, you know, I have Dries here, um, of course, so he's a great partner. I recruited in, um, you know, a couple of executives since I've been here, um, that I trust and that I've worked with before. And, uh, we have a great executive team here, but outside the company, First of all, we have a great board at Acquia, so we're, we're lucky. There's some some really good operators, and then and then venture capitalists and financial and entrepreneurial types on our board that are, I'm lucky I can lean on. But I'm also fortunate in my career to have had a lot of people that have gone on to become CEOs um, that I keep in touch with, and you know we compare notes. And if I'm in town, wherever they are, or, or vice versa, we get together and have dinner. Uh, I'm in one CEO group, which is, I find very, very interesting and uh, helpful. Um, But you certainly develop a network of people that you can talk to. um, And I I certainly do tap into that. Is the CEO group local? Like, is it a local group of CEOs in the Boston tech scene or is it broader than that? It's really national. Uh, There's really kind of uh, CEOs over a hundred million dollar companies um, that are around the U.S. Well, one of the things going back to uh, SteelPoint and now at Acquia, obviously revenue is king and you know, you're constantly thinking about how do we grow revenue. But when you're just starting a company, you know, what advice would you give to founders around um, you know, generating revenue day one and trying to you know, build a business and maybe they don't have the luxury of having term sheets in front of them? Yeah. Um... Well, if you want to start something and bootstrap it, you know, you've got to think about your first customer. You've got to, you know, you really have to line somebody up uh, almost in advance on day one that is um, interested in what you're going to build and who's willing to spend a little time with you. And, you know, if you have an idea, you can probably find that one company. And usually I think most entrepreneurs come up with an idea because they, you know, they know of a need that exists and somebody that has that need. So I think it's always good to have somebody to constantly go back and forth and validate with. Uh, Even better, obviously, if you can get somebody to do some kind of investment, even if it's, uh, you know, testing things out and using your product if it's for free. Uh, So so that's really important. But, you know, the other advice I'd give to entrepreneurs at an early stage is is not to be discouraged. Uh, You know, I think a classic advice you hear is, you know, take risks and don't be afraid to fail. But I think as I look back, you know, you are always afraid to fail and you always feel like it's a struggle too. And I I taught myself at some point to step back and take a look back at what you've been doing and realize all the, you know, progress you've made and the success you've had, because every day is a struggle. 
it always seems like, you know, the problems in front of you are, are difficult and sometimes insurmountable. You've got competitors coming at you. You've got budgets and financials and, you know, deadlines to hit and so forth. And, you know, it never ends. And sooner or later, you, you kind of realize that. But, um, you know, take the time to step back and, and look at um, the progress you're making. That's great feedback. Because, yeah, I think it's just that continuous on the treadmill because you're right. You know, get, a larger goal next year or you know pressure from competition and uh i think it is good to kind of take a step back once in a while and just look at what you've accomplished to date and not to say you need to pat yourself on the shoulder and but you know it is good to kind of reflect and realize that the hard work is paying off and it's still going to be hard work to get ahead but uh you know that's part of the journey yeah that's absolutely true well mike thanks so much for taking the time for sharing your words of wisdom as you noted Acquia is in super growth mode. So there's lots of job openings on VentureFizz. Check out their biz page. Uh, there's a lot going on in terms of hiring across all different functions. But uh, Mike, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for talking. I enjoyed it. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.